You are tuned in to the Green College Lecture Series, broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM and online at citr.ca. This podcast is sponsored by CITR. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. resident member series. Uh, today we have Philip Holden, uh, who along with his wife Sian, um, are one of your college's visiting scholars this year from the National University of Singapore. Philip is a professor of English and Literature and specializes in Southeast Asian Literatures in English and Autobiographies and Biographies. Um, he received his PhD in English from UBC. Um, and he also, you probably already know, but he also was one of the student representatives on the advisory board for starting Greek College back in 91. Unfortunately, he didn't get to be one of the first residents at Green, but now he's back and he's um, going to be talking about his work um, on the biography of British writer W. Somerset Maugham. Yeah, just to say uh, thanks very much. Um, I thought what I'd do tonight, since we're sort of a motley group of people with different interests, was really just to um, maybe talk a little bit about how autobiography studies has informed my research over the last few years, and especially how it informs my current project, which is this biography of then W. Somerset Maugham. And in a way, I think talking about research, this kind of research naturally brings you back to questions of your own autobiography and your own biography and writing. So I thought I'd maybe spend the first little bit of the talk um, talking a little bit about myself and how I got here. And I thought I'd start with a kind of moment. And the moment is um, something like this. Um, it's an autobiographical moment. I arrived at UBC to do my doctorate in late August 1989, a long time ago, right? Um, and it was too early to get into Fairview Crescent, right? Um, Green College didn't exist at that time. And so I took a taxi uh, to the Jericho Youth Hostel and I spent three nights at the Jericho Youth Hostel, which you guys may know, especially if you've been doing the Day of the Longboat, right? It's just down there. And I remember this sort of strange time that I just, I just arrived and it was the evening and I walked out and I walked at the Jericho Pier. And for the first time, I kind of looked across at um, this wonderful sort of glowing city of Vancouver. And I went back and slept. And the next morning, I remember I woke up and I walked up to 4th Avenue and I went to Muffin Break, which is still there. And I had a corn muffin and a coffee. And then I got on the four, number four bus and came all the way up to UBC. And I just remember going um, through the gates and just the, um, I guess the, uh, the grounds were all covered in fog at that time. So I can remember all that, and yet I can remember very little about the days that follow. And one of the interesting things about autobiography and biography is how it comes in lumps. So you have these certain kind of moments uh, which you do remember, or which other people remember in other people's lives. And then you have all these absences in between. And I think part of the challenge in any kind of autobiography is filling in those gaps, and how much of those gaps do you actually want to fill in anyway? But how do you start assembling them into a narrative, into some kind of narrative? And obviously, even the biography itself represents a life and has certain 
rules of truth-telling, which you can break if you want to, but you've got to be aware of why you're breaking them and got to let people know. Um, even though it's got those kind of rules, there's considerable flexibility within those rules. So it's something in between maybe writing fiction and writing a more standard kind of academic text. So just to think a little bit more then about where I was at that time and why did I come to Mormon eventually, uh, what was the, my intellectual history? Um, before I came to UBC, I'd taken some time out from studying. I traveled to China and Taiwan in the 1980s, and I'd also worked with Vietnamese refugees in the UK. And one of the things I found very much sort of personally was how my kind of own experience of Asia was very different from the images of Asia that were being produced for me, both in fiction and also in the media. And so I come to UBC, and UBC's at that time, in the late 1980s, there's this sort of heady interest in what's now called post-colonial theory. And in particular, I became very attracted to this um, Palestinian intellectual, Edward Said, who many of you will have heard about, and especially Said's notion of Orientalism. So Said's notion of Orientalism basically was, would be that um, within Western thought, and Western is always put in, sort of, I guess, in scare quotes of some kind, there's a certain regularity to the way that Asia is considered or thought about such that um, Asia is often seen as being the opposite to the West. And it becomes quite difficult for individual writers to move outside certain kind of overall stereotypes or what Said calls discourses, taken from Michel Foucault's um, ideas. Now, what I then did was, and this is probably not a good thing to do, actually, when you actually um, do academic work, was I went out and I thought, okay, I need to find a writer <laughs> I can work with. It was that crew, you know, a British writer. I need to find a writer who's popular. I need to find a writer who no one's done very much work on. And so, it, in a way, when I first got acquainted with Mom, it was rather, it was that. It wasn't sort of, uh, you know, I, it was almost a fix in a way. I sort of just, uh, you know, um, uh, came to him because he seemed the most convenient, the most likely suspect to use, right? Um, and of course, he's an interesting figure. I mean, he was born in Paris, in 1874, he lived 91, over 91 years, right? So a very, very long life. He first went through all these different phases. First of all, he wrote realist novels about working class life. He then became a popular playwright. He was already too old to, be, um, uh, to fight in World War I, so he became a spy instead, a very amateur spy, not a very good spy, um, but uh, uh, he did it yeah, yeah, for a couple of years. Um, and then I think um, what that happened was later he began to travel, quite, so quite late in life. I mean, he's traveling what, you know, when he's in his 40s and 50s. Um, and he goes to South Pacific and then to East and Southeast Asia. And in the 1920s and 1930s, he really became known as a short story writer in particular, someone who wrote about China, Malaya, and that part of the world, as it then was. And then he carried on, he had a prodigious output. His last book, which was absolutely scandalous, it was an autobiography, but it's an autobiography that's full of lies, uh, absolutely wonderful, it was called Looking Back, was published in 1962, right? So that was when he was not quite 90 years old, right? Um, he also had a fascinating private life, and I think his private life informed his work. Um, he had affairs with women, but and a marriage to a woman who herself deserves a biography, a woman called Siri Morm, who was actually 
the really the first interior designer in the United Kingdom, uh, a very interesting woman. Um, but his greatest affections were for men. Was he gay? Well, not in the contemporary sense. Um, he visited brothels and bathhouses with wearying regularity, if you look at um, his diaries. But his closest relationships were with men who weren't his social equals, who were actually his employees. So his two long-term relationships were, were very intense, but also very fraught, were with his two secretaries, Gerald Haxton and Alan Searle. And the third thing that was interesting about him is he was a celebrity writer. And he was very conscious of his own celebrity. So all the time he's manufacturing this public image for public consumption. And he was actually one of the very first writers to go to Hollywood and to think of the real possibilities of Hollywood in the early 1920s um, for production of a certain kind of celebrity culture. Right? So, you know, Mom's writing about Southeast Asia and East Asia does seem rather stereotypical now. Said fits in that kind of way. And yet I think when you start looking at writers, they're always a bit more complex than you think. And I think what's most interesting to me about Mormon, or in writing the, the, my PhD thesis at that time, 20 years ago, was the way that he concentrated on domestic issues. So most kind of British writers at the time would be into, uh, who wrote about Asia or Southeast Asia would be writing about sort of adventuring and kind of alpha males who were off on these kind of wonderful exploratory kind of expeditions and were struggling against, you know, conditions and that kind of thing. And what Morm did was he looked much more closely at kind of the domestic arrangements of colonialism and sort of these scandalous things that were happening in European culture, largely European culture, he didn't know Asian culture very well, in colonial situations. So that was quite interesting as well, right? Um, and I think part of that comes from his own experiences. He was... Um, homosexual, gay, how would you find him, bisexual man, living in a society in which quite clearly there were very strange kind of things going on in terms of gender, and his position made him uniquely sensitive to it. So what happened with Morm? Well, actually, I graduated, I got my PhD, thanks to my supervisor here, uh, Patricia Merivale, who um, very kindly turned up. Um, and then what really happened was, you know, sort of all these things that go on with Morm, you know, um, I... I went to Singapore, I started a career, and I really moved away from more. And I moved in a rather logical order. I first started writing about other colonial writers who actually knew a lot more about the cultures in which they were located. So this guy is a guy called Hugh Clifford, who wrote about Malaya, who actually was fluent in Malay, was an official there for a very long time. And from that, I actually started becoming interested in what I call the deep history of Singapore writing in English. So you go back 100, 150 years, which communities are stuck producing writing in English. And so you get the straight Chinese who are this hybrid, a Pranakan community. And you can see by the dress, these people are hybrids, right? So they're wearing um, a combination of Malay, Chinese, and Western costume. And they produce some of the first and very interesting literature in English in Singapore, but a little bit over 100 years ago. And then from that, I became interested in autobiography studies. And I moved further, and I wrote a book on... Um, uh, national fathers who wrote autobiographies. So these people who were involved in the movement from colonialism to independence, who wrote, who, call, who thought themselves as father of the nation and wrote autobiographies about that. And the various people here, Nelson Mandela, obviously one, Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana, Lee Kuan Yew, of course, I'm in Singapore, so <laughs> got to get him in. And then there's a lovely picture of Nehru over there, and there's, uh, um, it's, so that India's first prime minister. 
right? So, but, so I did all this and I really, you know, wasn't that interested really in Mom anymore. And yet, Mom wouldn't go away. <laughs> and because every year or two, I get Barnes & Noble saying, writing to me and saying, we've got a new issue, edition of the Moon and Sixpence. Would you write us an introduction? You're the only person in the, uh, in, in the world who has published an academic book on Mom. Right? You know, uh, and so I get more demands and more demands for these collected issues. And then even things like the... Um, Oxford Encyclopedia of British Literature, they want an entry, uh, who's going to do it, if that matters on me, I'm the usual suspect, the, um, this is uh, Blackwell's Encyclopedia of 20th Century Fiction, they want something as well. So he wouldn't really let me go, right? Um, and I thought, okay, after about 20 years of him chasing me around, I thought, hmm, something is going on here. Uh, 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 I'm not sure what, but obviously I'm fated for him to follow me and follow me all the time, right? And I think also, what I'd also at that time, I was getting a little bit impatient with what I was doing. And I was looking to do something a bit different. And one of the things I wanted to try and do was to write maybe in a less academic way, or at least an academically different kind of way. The second one was um, to write in a way that would actually incorporate more effect or emotion in a way that often academic writing doesn't bring out. And the third thing, you know, I'd written a lot about biography and autobiography in theory, but I hadn't written a biography or autobiography. So it seemed logical, who is the guy who keeps on turning up in my life? It's Somerset Maugham. I'll write a biography of Somerset Maugham. Little did I know what I got into, right? Because as you've already guessed, the man lived for a long, long time. <laughs> During that time, he wrote a vast amount of letters. There's a huge amount of archival material um, going back uh, ages and ages and ages. Sometimes um, for his birthday, he would receive 500 letters a day. And he would, um, with a secretary, he would write back an equal number. Okay, most of them were just, you know, thank you very much for your well wishes, uh, sign, uh, uh, automatic signature. But there's a, a huge amount of correspondence. So the first challenge was the length of life. You've got the letters, which are in archives throughout the world, mostly in North America. Letters here. You've got a huge amount of rather curious things which are now available on the internet. So you've got actually um, uh, shipping documents which show when he, he moved, went from New York to London, you can find out the ship, you can find out all, all these kind, kind of things, passport applications, um, uh, huge amount, amount of things as well, now digitized. And what I started doing was just assembling a chronology of the life. And what I actually started using was I used Google calendars, which actually, you may not know it, but it can go back to 1700 or 1600 if you want to do it. And what I did was like everything, I just put it in for every single day of the life. So, so uh, it's actually really scary because um, <laughs> you end up like with months where you've got like hundreds of documents uh, and that becomes really scary. So um, you've got a huge amount of, of problems obviously with the length of the life, uh, just a surplus of information. The second problem I really faced, I think was, I'll get rid of this, right? Oh, so, so just to say, I mean, and this keeps on turning up. So last week, two things turned up for me. The first one was I just browsing the web and suddenly I found in the um, Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, there's actually a bill of sale of Mom's father's house. And Mom's father died when he was 10, year, uh, 10 years old. So what you can find out from this 60-page document there 
is everything that was in Morm's house when he was 10 years old. Uh, all the statues that were there, all the, uh, the carpets, the furnishings, all the books that were in the father's um, uh, you know, bookcase. Right? Um, and that's just a pretty random search. You can find, and these things keep on being put on the net. Uh, they keep on being digitized. They keep on arriving. The second thing was a much more personal thing. Um, this was um, just a series of correspondences that I had. And I managed to, to track down the nurse who attended Morm in the last few months of his life when he actually was suffering from dementia. This is what she looked like in the 60s. Um, and uh, he was, it, um, for some reason, he was exceptionally calm with her unlike the other nurses, and she says, I don't know why it is, was it, was it because I looked so beautiful and got there gorgeous, but she could actually work with him in a way that the other nurses actually couldn't. And, and she wrote to me like a, a long email about three, three or four, four, four pages and printed out long, which is very, very interesting about sort of the, those last few, last few months of his life, and very, very evocative and very moving. So you, you do actually meet all these um, complex sources of information. The second big problem is, who do you believe when you're looking at Mom? Because everybody has their Mom story, <laughs> right? Um, everybody, you know, um, friends, uh, the nephew who wrote a lot about him was also a writer, but the nephew is trying to blackmail him as well. Um, the uh, uh, other friends, um, people would do paintings of him. Other people would take photographs of him. Uh, that, that's a problem. And even his own writing is already staged, right? You never get back to a kind of something which is purely truthful because even when he's writing letters to friends, he's kind of very conscious. There's certain friends you tell certain things to, the other friends you don't tell things to. So that, that's one problem, another problem. Who on earth do you believe in all this? And the third thing is also that there's a very strange intersection in his life between the fact and the fiction, right? Um, Right. Um, you know, all these sort of funny things going on, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is what Mom says about, you know, his fiction, you know. And this, yeah, um, this is ra The Razor's Edge, um, which he wrote in the 1940s, which claims to be a novel, right? But it has a narrator, a, a guy who tells the, the story called Somerset Maugham. And he begins this novel by saying, I have invented nothing. To save embarrassment to people still living, I've given to the persons who play a part in the story names of my own contriving, and if in other ways taking pains to make sure that no one should recognize them. But actually, it's practically all made up. There's nothing in the <laughs> 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 very few examples. But similarly, on the other hand, um, a lot of the allegedly biographical works that he produced, autobiographical works, are highly elaborate fictions, which do have some grounding in the truth, but are not. So the problem is actually, and the problem I think is, is to try and think of, well, how do you deal with that? Um, he's a master storyteller. H how do you cope with, with that kind of thing um, when you actually do the work? Now, there are four major biographies of him written. So you might think, well, why write a biography about this guy? Again, there's four people have done it. And there's Ted Morgan's Mom, there's Robert Calder's Willie, there's... Um, Jeffrey Myers, Somerset Maugham, and the most recent one is The Secret Lives of Somerset Maugham by Selina Hastings. But they're all very similar. Um, they follow a kind of cradle-to-grave na grave narrative. And um, obviously the earlier biographies, the advantage they have, if they're done in the 1980s, you could interview a lot of people. They were still alive. You don't have that anymore. But the later biographies have access to much more material. 
But my problem with them is that I think what they don't tend to do is have a very sophisticated relationship between the works themselves and the life, the storytelling. What they try and do is they try and just dig around and say, well, this is factual and this is not. Right? And how much can we work out from the fiction and from, from the, the written documents, what is true, what is not? And it's almost an impossible task. So what do I do? Well, I have some thoughts, right? This is a, um, so I'm going to give some silly pictures of theorists, right? So um, if any of you know, Theodor Adorno is a very somber, um, gloomy uh, German uh, intellectual. Um, this is the only picture I've seen him wearing a bathing suit. And a very, very large chair. I don't know. How, I mean, I'm not quite sure what's going on there as well. Um, uh, but what I sort of took from Adorno is this notion that really the form of, the, the, of any kind of literary work, including a biography, is actually bound up with its meaning. So what Adorno says here, it's from an essay called Commitment, as it's not the office of art to spotlight alternatives, but to resist by its form alone the course of the world, which permanently puts a pistol to men's heads. So what he's saying is if, if, it's, if, an, if a biography is written in a certain kind of way, it already carries a certain kind of assumption. And what Adorno, of course, was advocating was a kind of modernist art, right? a kind of art that would disrupt perception. So an, ex an example of this, just very briefly, would be two things from Singapore. Um, here's realist, a realist versus a modernist work. So this um, top one is Chiang Lao Ti. It's a socialist realist work of, um, I guess, a workers in a, in a canteen in the eight, uh, 1970s, right? Um, this triad K drawing is obviously something which is much more abstract. Now, what would Adorno say about these different works of art? Well, he would say what the, um, the Chiang Lao Ti one, the one of the workers does, is it encourages you to look through just look through as like a window on reality, right? You're, you're looking through and you're seeing something realistic. But what something like um, Triad K's drawing does, it, it catches you up in the surface of the artwork itself. So you start looking at it and you think, hmm, that's kind of interesting. It's a picture of a shop house, which you find throughout Southeast Asia. It's kind of interesting. He's using a traditional medium, which is Chinese brushwork, but he's not done it in a traditional way. Right? And then there's a huge amount of play with lights and forms and shade and presences and absences, which tends to catch you up in the surface of the artwork and get you to think about the relationship between form and content in the way that the first doesn't. Right? Um, and if this all seems a bit abstract, you know, there's a good old Canadian who said it much better. The medium is the message. Right? Um, this is also a yeah, <laughs> uh, famous critics at play. <laughs> kind of slide too. Not sure where he was. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So, so, what I'm thinking then is, how do I do this with a biography? How, how do I write a biography in, certain, in a way that doesn't simply replicate all the common sense of Morn's life? And I went back and I started thinking about what are the problems with the way. Um, current biographies are told. Right? Um, and previous biographies all follow the same kind of structure. Right? They all follow this cradle to the grave narrative, which is really difficult for them to do. They're always these thick books, right? because the guy didn't live for 91 years. How do you cram it all in? Right? So that's a basic problem to start with. But the second thing is that I think what they do is they, what they, they try to do always is they go through the, the life and they try to find the truth of the life. What's the life really about? And the, what the life really about 
is about is his sexuality and his hidden sexuality. That's what it's really about when it comes down to it. And so what you get is a kind of chronological detective-style narration. And you can actually even see this in some of the titles, you know, The Secret Lives of Somerset Maugham, or a recent um, movie that just came out, a documentary, um, Revealing Mr. Maugham. So it's a, the more we can, we can really find out what's really there, the more we dig and the more we dig. Right? Um, and I think also it becomes a kind of morality play. He actually suffered from Alzheimer's at the end of his life. And there's a lot of, like, you know, a kind of casual narrative that seems to be adopted quite often is, well, he wasn't a very nice man, which he wasn't, right? Um, so um, when he suffered from Alzheimer's, all those kind of chickens came home to roost and he was incredibly unhappy and kind of tormented by the past. And this, these kind of stories are stories that if you want to go back to say the kind of discourses that actually become very difficult to untell. So even though the four biographies are rather different, like Calder's Willie is actually much more sympathetic to him. I think um, Morgan's the first one really portrays him as a kind of quite a, a nasty character, which is something that he was. Um, but um, they all tell in a way the same kind of shape of story. So what to do? Well, I've devised something and I'm not sure how it's working right now, but the proposal is, is with the press anyway, so let's see what they say to me. But the way I actually um, try to think about it is something like this, that Mom's own life was his greatest work of art. The, the, the life was the greatest fiction. And I think when you tell that, and you, to order to have leisure to explore that, you really need to have time to tell a partial life. Right? There's no point in starting <laughs> yeah, way back you know, in 1874 and going all the way through. It's just too much to cover. Right? <clears throat> so what then... For me, what seemed to me the most interesting time was a time in 1946 when already he's very old. And he comes back, he spent the war years in America, and he comes back from America to live in his house. And he's had this house um, called the Villa Moresque in, on the Riviera in France since the 1920s, since 1927. And it seemed to me that, in a way, the more you talk about the house, and the more you find the most interesting and acute observers who go to the house, the house is a kind of stage. It's an elaborate stage. It's got, uh, it's got a, a set at the front. It's got things hidden behind. Um, it's a set he actually performs on, right? And yet it's also connected with remembrance of things past. There are artifacts in this house that go way, way back in his life. I mean, the, the, the thing that goes furthest back is in his room, bedroom, he keeps a lock of hair of his mother who died when he was eight years old and a picture of her. And then there are things taken from all, all the life there. And in some ways also, the architecture of the, of the house itself seems to have something to do with the architecture of the stories. That the stories themselves are about hidden rooms and about dividing things. I mean, the, the most characteristic thing about all of Mom's writing is, if you read his short stories especially, is he loves to frame things, right? So your standard Mom short story has two guys, you know, sitting down and chatting, and then, do you remember this incident? Yes, I did. What happened? And then we go back into another story, and then it's contained and it comes back at the end. So there's a certain kind of architecture to the story, right? Um, and what kind of intrigued me, right, was in a way trying to use the end of the life 
use a time at which he's stopping writing, he's not writing very much anymore, to think about these very processes of memory that seem to actually be, and storytelling, which seem to be actually central to his life. So what I thought I'd do is I'd got about a 10 minute little beginning of the, um, the narrative to actually read to you. Um, okay, so this is timed right. This should take about 10 minutes to, but we'll see everywhere. Okay, so this is the beginning of the first chapter, and then, well, you can see if you want to go on reading after I've finished. And if, if you do, I guess it's a good sign. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay, so I'll start. Um, it was a better ship than they expected. The SS Columby was returning hesitantly to her previous vocation after several years' service as a troop transport. Not quite one of those splendid transatlantic liners that Mom had been, had been used to before the war, but a smaller cruise ship that plied the Caribbean and the Norwegian coast in better times. A decent enough vessel for the passage from New York to Marseille. Their farewells made and the last round of farewell parties concluded, Mormon and his secretary, Alan Searle, left New York on May 29, 1946. The weather was unseasonably warm. The sea is smooth as a lake. Fellow passengers on the voyage must have found it difficult to work out the relationship between the two men. Alan, not yet 40, was curly-headed and smiling, but clearly no longer in the first flush of youth. A decade and a half before, Mormon and his companions had called him the Bronzino boy, recalling the figure of Cupid in the Florentine artist's Allegory of Venus, his hair tousled, his slim white body arched forward in a kiss. Now time, lurking in the margins of Bronzino's painting, had moved to centre stage. Alan was plump, even jowly, his cheeks puffed out like a hamster's. If he'd once been a dish, Mourne would remark, he was now a tureen. <laughs> his companion was altogether different. William Sunset Mourne was in his 70s, still dapper, his hair almost untouched by white. He held himself stiffly as a retired member of the armed forces, perhaps to compensate for his lack of stature. Mourne would stand on the sun deck, smoking, jaw thrust out from his yellow face, mouth turned down in apparent disapproval. His clothes were understated but immaculate, worn almost as a kind of armour. In public, he was never quite at ease, an Edwardian politeness circling him like a wall. At the bar or the card table, he would flinch if someone touched him, and yet, if left to his own devices, he might uncoil. The dull brown eyes would suddenly brighten, the mouth turned upwards in the wintry semblance of a smile. When the canvas chairs were put on the sun deck, he'd stretch himself out and settle down like a cat. When the two men talked, there were other incongruities. Alan's chirpy cockney betrayed the East London origins that he tried sporadically to leave behind. Accent in England, Mom wrote, has always placed a man. Yet the older man's voice undermined the certainty of this pronouncement. Cut glass received pronunciation, intensely musical, but tending to the over-precise. It hinted at many things that were out of place. A bilingual childhood, a young adulthood on a class boundary. Mom was not, of course, a gentleman. 
and finally a hard-won victory over a stammer. More telling, perhaps, was an over-earnest attempt to fit in. In telling anecdotes to his fellow passengers, Moore would casually drop in Americanisms he'd learned in his half-decade of exile. But the effect always seemed studied, over-conscious. On the ship's manifest, Alan was listed as Mon's secretary, and this wasn't untrue. Yet a perceptive observer would have noticed the relationship was much more complex than that. There was clearly a deep affection between the two men that transcended that between most employers' employees. They were more like father and son, or perhaps patient and nurse. And as with all patients and nurses, fathers and sons, power ebbed and flowed, between the two parties. The old man was easily fussed and at times displaced his anxieties onto Alan. He was demanding and even occasionally openly cruel. Alan knew where most of the power lay. His almost vocational caring gave way at times to a very public martyrdom. If he suffered, he also made sure that others knew the extent of his suffering. It's easy for contemporary readers who have heard something about Maugham and who live in a society which thinks itself more open than his, to identify the source of the men's intimacy. They were, of course, gay, but in an important sense, they really weren't. Mormon Allen would never use the word to describe themselves. Mormon used the word queer to talk of himself and homosexual to discuss sexuality at a long arm's length in his written work. And this was not merely a matter of terminology. Mormon's relationships with other men were very different from the type of consensual and equal companionship for which we now demand civil partnerships, marriage, and the right to bring up children. Alan, like Mom's earlier partner, Gerald Haxton, was his lover but also his employee, his fixer and his factotum. Their relationship, much as either of them might have at times desired it, was not one of equals. The ship sailed on. At the card table, Maud played Oklahoma with his fellow passengers, breaking even and enjoying the prompt service in the French cuisine. French ships held another attraction for him, he would later tell an interviewer, slightly tongue-in-cheek. In an emergency rush for lifeboats, there was none of this women and children first nonsense. <laughs> so this is not his side, right? Secure this knowledge, he relaxed reading a distracting knowledge, uh, so distracting but ultimately disappointing novel. Alan, meanwhile, made inroads in the case of liquor given to him by Ellen, Ellen Dubbenlay and wrote letters laced with toilet humour to her husband, Mom's publisher. Not a motion of any sort. The sea, I mean. Mom's companions were, like him, returned to a Europe that no longer existed. They were mostly Jewish, going back to France or to Hungary, Romania or the Balkans, back to communities that had been consumed by the Holocaust and now existed only in their memories. Others looked further in the future and were already planning to continue their journeys in a different direction, to depart for a region which Mom could only, for which Mom could only employ a name that would soon fall out of usage, Asia Minor. In less than two years' time, Ben-Gurion would declare the establishment of the State of Israel. Before he left America, Mom had vociferously defended himself against charges of anti-Semitism. Yet his letters, with their caustic references to the vociferously exulting crowds of the children of Israel, to an extent give a lie to this. The caustic, casually accepted anti-Semitism of the British middle classes between the wars, 
of Virginia Woolf's comments on her husband, for example, were still there, unadulterated by Moon's sojourn in America, but out of place in a world marked by piles of bodies at Belsen or Auschwitz. They passed Gibraltar and entered the Mediterranean. The past was drawn closer. For Moon, schoolboy sojourns in a villa on a hill in Hierre, propinquity fostered by a silent infatuation with his tutor's wife on welcome breaks from the austerity of an English public school. Later, Capri, a refuge from the trials of Oscar Wilde, visions of gilded youths, snowy limbs burnt red after sunbathing, moonlight walks, or evenings in the close intimacy of the Villa Valentino. And later still, in the 1920s, now famous, he had bought and rebuilt the Moresque in Capferrat, its gate marked by a Moorish sign against the evil eye, its garden and interior, as Edna Millet would describe it with an unconscious yet acute irony, fairyland. Alan will come to this house too in the 1930s. Ambling onto the stage set, Moore had created to sun sailing and sex, his Bermondsey childhood left far behind. I wish you were here, Alan had written from the rest of the Zen lover, Lytton Strakey. You would enjoy the confectionery. Yesterday I went to a lovely island in the Mediterranean, and there I heard birds making strangest cries and saw sapphire blue fish and coral red sea anemones, and the sky and sea were unbelievable. I wandered about quite alone, and suddenly I found an angel wearing green shorts to match his eyes. I sent my boat away and returned eventually in my angel's canoe a dangerous craft. He was 16 and beautiful and slim and intelligent and talked books and mentioned yours and that finally melted me. There were no angels now, or at least not yet. As the Mediterranean opened out after the Straits of Gibraltar, the past pressed itself on them again. Textures and sounds forced themselves on the senses like fossils hacked out from rock, varnish on the wooden railings, white paint on the streamlined gangways, cold in the morning but burning hot when run through the fingers at midday, or the sudden tug of the ship's whistle nestled behind the second funnel. The war might almost never have happened. Marseille brought them back to reality. French bureaucracy, with which one was never particularly enamoured, was only creaking slowly back into motion. A single customs official had been assigned to the 200 passengers on the ship. Confusion reigned, and they waited on the quayside while each returnee's heaps of possessions, luggage, food, and all the other items that America could provide a European life were unloaded. Seven hours, and then it was over. They took a car for the journey of more than 100 miles to Cap Ferrat. Not the villa yet, but to the more modest uh, Hotel Waldor, low on the hillside among the roofs of Saint-Jean Harbour on the other side of the cape from the house. At this moment, before they made those last few steps of the return journey, Morm could still enter into the house of memories. And I'll stop there and... Yeah, and thanks very much for your question. Listened to campus lecture series on CITR 101.9 FM. The lecture was about the idea of the university, reflection from Singapore. I'm Neil from Korea, an intern of CITR. 
Now I'm going to play some songs which are related to education, school, something like these things. I hope you enjoy the music. Thank you. 
You were listening to the Green College Lecture Series, sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. You can also download the podcast at www.citr.ca. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Tune in next week to hear more from the Green College Lecture Series. Butros, Butros Gali, put down your gun and listen to... Are you aware of music that has something to say on CITR 101.9 Vancouver?